0: It is Locked on NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked on NBA. Kevin Pelton, ESPN insider. One of our favorites comes on. Very philosophical discussion about three-point rate, offensive rebounding. Is the three-pointer five feet behind the line a better shot than a mid-range two? Where is it all going? We do it all. Coming up on today's show, thanks as always to our sponsor, SeatGeek. Use the promo code LOCK. That's LOCKED to get a $20 rebate. That's locked to get a $20 rebate. And it is Draft Wednesday on the Locked On Podcast Network. Every Wednesday we get together with all of our listeners and we have a draft on the app Draft. So download the app Draft and play the daily fantasy game. The draft is the best part, so make sure you get to be a part of that. And the promo code is L-O-N-B-A. Make sure you've subscribed to your favorite team's daily Locked On Podcast. Here's Kevin Pelton.
1: You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
0: We're going to start this one with the great Kevin No, and I feel like it's our yearly question. Uh, You got into it a little bit in your mailbag the other day differently, where the question was like, who is the originator of the three-point era, Kevin? Let's go back to the question you and I have been talking about for the last two or three years. Like when is enough enough when the Rockets are taking 51% of their shots as threes, you talked in your mailbag that the last two years are the largest increase. Where are we going with the percentage of shots taken as threes?
1: I mean, as far as enough, when is enough enough, but we haven't found it yet. And we haven't, and the Rockets haven't found it. And, you know, they're they're way out beyond any other team in NBA history. I I think they're still taking more threes than twos, right? Yeah,
0: 515 fifty one fifty one point uh, five percent so, of their shots are threes.
1: Yeah, I mean I I don't know if you would ask me ten years ago if you if I thought that we, that would happen within the next ten years, you know, I might not have said it would happen within the next twenty years. But then, you know, as as I mentioned in that in that piece in the mailbag. You know, there was a period of time where the three-point rate in the league kind of leveled off for a few years. And then all of a sudden, you know, when the Rockets really started committing to this uh, under Kevin McHale, that is, you know, whether it was because of their example or because other teams came to the same conclusion – since then, it's really started exploding. And look, here's the thing: is everyone wants to talk about, oh, you know, there's the point that's going to come where the, the long two is going to be undervalued, and you know, where the things are going to flip, and it's cyclical. There's no evidence in other leagues, all of whom shoot more threes than the NBA does, that there's ever any cyclical aspect to it. There's no cyclical aspect in college basketball, none in in international, and with the feeble line, which is much shorter. The only way you prevent threes from getting higher. The three-point attempt rates from getting higher is by moving the line back. That's it. That's the only thing that's ever worked.
0: And so how hard is it, do you think, to shoot 50% of your shots as threes? Is there a level of difficulty that will prevent this from continuing? Um, I mean, obviously,
1: you know, you're getting more marginal shots uh, at some point. But, you know, the other interesting thing that I found is people think, okay, well, you know, teams are taking so many threes now. What about plays at the basket? What's going to happen with that? But none of those are going away. What's happening is just you're converting two-point jumpers into three-point jumpers, at least at a league-wide scale. I mean, I haven't necessarily looked at this with the Rockets, but obviously James Harden is and Capella, they're, they're still getting plenty of shots around the basket themselves. So, I, I mean, I think it's really more of a mindset difficulty, like a, you know, a philosophy philosophical difficulty for coaches to adjust their playbooks to, you know, everything is designed around the three and encourage their players to shoot threes rather than, you know, it's actually the difficulty in finding those shots. You know, Andy Larson... I mean, it's obviously easier when you have Chris Ball and Harden, though. Right. Andy, Andy, Larson, that
0: does help. Andy Larson combined on a pro- uh, project or did the project for me on my asking. Um, it was a local Salt Lake reporter. He looked at since 2010-11... I thought these numbers were incredible. If you make twelve threes in a game, you win seventy percent of your games. If you make fifteen, you win seventy-seven. If you make sixteen, you win eighty percent of your games. If you make eighteen, you win eighty-three percent. Like if you make ten percent, you make if you make ten of your threes, threes you make win sixty-five percent of your games. Like it's it doesn't have anything to do with percentage. It doesn't have anything to do with attempts. Just make them. And actually, this doesn't even count how many you're losing. Because the other team, when you took ten, made thirteen, right? Like, um, right. It, and so, well, that,
1: I did do that. I did do that study last year, which is if you make more threes than your, right? I can't remember if it was make more threes or shoot a higher percentage. I think it was make more threes. Like, how often do you win? And that percentage has always been pretty high, but it is growing steadily higher as, as threes become a larger part of the game.
0: So what? so alright so you mentioned in the other games it hasn't stopped yet. Like where what's your guess on where it goes?
1: I I mean, you know, it's not like we've ever seen it get to the point where like every shot is a three, but again there's no, there's no break on it necessarily. There's no there's no point where it flips.
0: All right, you that t- we've found. You started down this road. Um, I've clearly had too many coffees. I keep interrupting you. I've, it's my three, four espressos already today to keep me going on a foggy, dreary day on the eleventh day of a road trip in Oklahoma City. I, I need to, I need to slow myself down. Uh, the you did this last year about the amount of deep threes. So the discussion I have not heard yet is: Are you better taking a mid-range jumper or a three six feet behind the line?
1: I mean, I'm pretty sure the answer is a three, six feet pine line. I mean, obviously, it's also dependent on the shooter. And that's where it's a smaller pool of players who are capable of doing it. But it's a growing one all the time. And, and that, I think, is really one of the important lessons here. Is that as much as we want to talk about people embracing the math and the three is greater than two, really, it, uh, there's not any indication to me that coaches have changed their thresholds as a whole, for what's an acceptable three point attempt, what's happened is that there are in the last five years, all of a sudden a lot more players who are capable of taking a lot more threes and hitting them collectively at the same percentage because the league three point percentage i think you know I think this year you know it's basically hovered around thirty five percent for many many decades, basically since you know it, the first few years when people were adjusting to the new length of the three point line. And this year, yeah, as of yesterday, it was at 36.4%. So percentages are also getting higher in addition to us shooting more threes. So that's the change is more players capable of taking deep threes, more players capable of taking threes off the dribble, which I wrote about last year and how important that is for point guards. Um, Those are, I think, some of the changes that we've seen.
0: The mid-range shot, I believe, is at .76 points per shot this year. Is that about right? Or is it higher it seems reasonable. I think that's about right. It might, might be a little higher than that. Um, I'd have to check it. But um, uh, Actually, I'm looking right now at my numbers. So without the latest update, has it at 0.8 points per shot, um, I think. So um, let's go with that. 0.8 points per shot because it's at 40% for the league. So really what you're saying is the day that you're seeing a change is the day in which... We start allowing guys who shoot twenty eight percent from three to shoot them, because that's a better shot. Because that
1: because the
0: fact that it's equivalent. Yeah, like I mean, that's actually it's a little bit better, right? I mean, that that was that's point four point eight four points per shot compared to point eight points per shot. Like that's just a little bit better. It's like twenty. So when you suddenly allow the twenty eight percent three point shooter to shoot, is the day that you really think people have understood the math.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's also just this visceral like notion of like, oh, I can't believe that this guy is shooting so many threes. He's a 30% three-point shooter. But nobody says, oh, I can't believe this guy is taking two, so many long twos. He's a 45% long two-point shooter. There's something very fundamental about how often the shot goes in that's difficult for people to get over.
0: Interesting. All right. Let's go to scenario. Th- this is one that I've always kind of wondered about that I don't feel like it's been studied well enough. It's actually my Al Jefferson. Go back to Al Jefferson, like the last... Al Jefferson might be the last post player in the history of the NBA. Like, truly, like, I'm trying to figure... No, I'm serious. Like, who was the last guy that you went and gave the ball to and he took, like, a post shot? Is it Al Jefferson? Will he be the last one?
1: I mean, he's probably the last person whose, like, value is really predicated on his ability in the post, I guess.
0: Right. like I mean, Embiid, they post up an awful lot and evidently enough to make him miss a bunch of games Um, when he's in his 49th minute of work in a triple overtime game. Oh, side note. Uh, But they he usually straightens up because of the league rules. Right. So somebody once said to me about Jefferson, but you got to understand when the shot is taken. So. Their point was, if it's late in the shot clock and you go to Al Jefferson and he throws up that little hook shot when he was in his prime and he finds he's only making 42% of it, but in the final five seconds of shot clock, if you're getting 0.8 points per shot, then that's actually a pretty good shot. Is there any point here, maybe in the final two minutes of a game, or something where the sample size is now getting smaller, that the mid-range shot is actually okay? The the per, If you take a lot of 30% threes... You're getting point nine points per shot over a collection of shots but at some point in the game it's probably better to take a 40 percent shot than a 30 percent shot right because you're putting point it's increasing your chance of putting at least some points on the board
1: well I mean I think the argument would have to be that that in those cases the three-point percentages fall more quickly than mid-range percentages fall because of the fact that you're stripping out all of the, the really easy attempts. Because if you could get the easy attempts, you would have already taken them early on the shot clock. Uh, I think that's the logic. And I know that uh, several years ago, Christian Arsu did some work on this in terms of, you know, at what point in the shot clock do, you know, the the percentages on long twos and threes even out. And And they did get much closer at that point. I don't know that they've ever actually, you know, flipped the percentages at any point.
0: Rockets and Warriors, big three-point shooting teams. Minute and a half left in the game, close game. At that point, is the Chris Paul, Kevin Durant mid-range jumper okay? Because those guys are such good mid-range shooters, and that's a better—is that a better shot then at that point?
1: I mean, possibly. The other thing that you have to play play into this is, you know, at some point, at the very end of the game just scoring points does become more important. Like if it's a tie game at the end and and you've got the final shot, well, the expected value of the shot isn't important. It's just the percentage you're going to make it. Uh,
0: all right. Next numerical conversation. I did not prepare you for this. Um, I actually thought I was going to get a bunch of work done on it and have not. So offensive rebounding rate used to be 27% around there in the NBA. That, that was kind of the league average. I believe it is down. The median is now twenty one percent, maybe even a little bit below. I do believe that there's like a certain. The old question was whether, whether you offensive rebound or not because of transition and everything else. But at that point, when the when the when the average was twenty seven percent, it does seem as like the max you could ever get is like thirty one, thirty two. Just the way the games played, it did, it wasn't worth it. Is it become any more worth it to become an offensive rebounding team as sparse as offensive rebounds have become in the league?
1: So because of the fact that most teams are getting so few offensive rebounds, now you have more of a chance to distinguish yourself?
0: Yes, exactly. Like it used to be that the league average was about 27%, the best in the league was 31%. So you're really getting like one a game or two a game. Like the the margin's not that now, if the league average is twenty one percent, if you suddenly go get three or four extra offensive rebounds, and that's a high, that's three or four points, if not more. Um, particularly if you are kicking out to three, maybe suddenly offensive rebounding has a lot of value.
1: Well, you know, I don't know that the high bound relative to the average has changed that much. I mean, no one in the league right now is getting more than twenty seven percent in practice. So. I, I mean, I think what is hap- what does happen probably is again, you know, every time you rebound less, you're giving up the the uh, the most marginal opportunities to offensive rebound, and almost all of those now have gone into transition. So now maybe it's even better opportunities to offensive rebound that teams are giving up, I, I guess. Uh, part of the difficulty, of course, is if you're emphasizing three-point shooting as much as we are in the league right now, you've probably got four players beyond the arc when the shot goes up, or you know, maybe at least three around the two guys running the pick and roll. And so that that is one reason that offensive rebounding is down ab- above and beyond just kind of the, the, the emphasis on transition that coaches play.
0: So, I I'm, haven't done all my research on this. I, I'm, I'm really intrigued on this one. I, I think there's something going on where there's a, you know, if Moneyball is finding the inefficiencies, right? Uh, or the undervalued thing, I, I think that's the offensive rebound. One premise that you don't offensive rebound is because it helps you defensively, right? That's that's the premise. The six worst. Off- that is
1: the, the notion.
0: Yeah. The six worst offensive rebounding teams, none of them are in the top 10 defensively. In fact, five of the six. Where
1: are they in terms of transition
0: defense? Well, I don't have that. I just. What do you want me to do? Impredictable to get that? (laughs) That's two different charts that don't look on the same page. Uh, But but the. I mean, it's interesting to me, right? It is. But but that's a.
1: You can. Only so much impact the transition defense can have. That is interesting.
0: All right, let me Uh, me take it a step further and see if. Think about the fact that. Who's going? Okay. I'm going to take it a step further because I was semi prepared for this. Bottom 10, so from 20th to 30, which actually I guess is bottom 11. Here are the defensive ranks of the 11 worst offensive rebounding teams. 30th, 27th, 26th, 21st, 9th, 28th, 16th, 24th, 20th, 13th, and 7th. So of the worst 11 offensive rebounds, only one of them is 9th defensively.
1: But you don't have Boston in that group?
0: Boston's 19th.
1: Okay, they're the 20th in what I'm looking at.
0: Uh,
1: I, I think that some of what's happening is, I don't know, there was a long period of time where offensive rebounding and defense were. that You had coaches like Doc Rivers' Boston and early Clippers' teams uh, Stan Van Gundy's teams, well, no, I guess Stan Van Gundy's Orlando teams, the offensive rebounded a lot. But there, there were coaches that were forsaking offensive rebounding and their team's defenses were very good. I, I think probably the, the influence of that one on the other was probably overstated. There was probably a bit of, you know, the coaches that cared the most about defense were their teams were good at defense and they, therefore did an offensive rebound. And it wasn't that their teams were good defensively because they did an offensive rebound. I mean, I think, you know, the evidence suggests that there was a paper flown several years ago where they looked at how many players you send the offensive glass and how, you know, how those plays played out is probably should be offensive rebounding more, but I don't think there's a magic bullet here. I don't think you're going to offensive rebound your way to victory.
0: All right. I'm going to keep researching. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm, to be, I'm on offensive rebound Island.
1: Cause when I've looked at it, I, I'm, I mean, I'm agnostic on this issue. When I have looked at it in terms of teams that have changed, I think the measure I used was, you know, how many offensive rebounds you get relative to your defensive rebounds. That's how I kind of tried to control for, whether teams were just bad at rebounding, or whether they were specifically strategically giving up offensive rebound, and when teams changed that ratio, they did get better offensively when they could offensive rebounded more, and they did get a little worse defensively. And in the end, it was a wash.
0: Okay. And you're and and so in the year 2012-13, the median team was 26.6 offensive rebounding. Five years later. The median, this year the median team is now at 21.2. You don't think that changes the metric? Or the discussion? Maybe. Maybe it's not just my espresso that has me so fired up to talk to Pelton I'm interrupting him all the time. Maybe it's because it's draft Wednesday. doesn't actually have to be Wednesday for you to play draft. Draft is a daily fantasy game. It's just terrific for the NBA. It's also really good for the NFL, particularly if you're like me and you're done with fantasy. Here's what the best part of fantasy is, is the draft. So this way you get to hold a draft every single time. Enter into draft, get three or four buddies together, and you draft your teams each night. Tonight, Wednesday, there's 12 games. Draft off those. Thursday, there'll be a few less. Friday, you can do it again. Get a group of guys together and enter in. Use the promo code LONBA. You'll get a free game after your first deposit. You draft your players. It takes about five minutes. You get the thrill of the draft, and you get to watch the games more. It's really fun. So you can do it at Draft.com or download the app Draft. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a super way to get friends together. You can do it for the NFL. You can do it for golf. I'll have a whole golf thing going. Uh, You can do it for NBA as well. Promo code is LONBA. Make sure you download the app Draft or do it at Draft.com and have a lot of fun. All right. I'm not convinced it does. It is time now to go into the mysterious math classroom of head coaches of the NBA. Can you please explain to me Jason Kidd's version of math? So let's start with the up. I mean, I was the up four foul game he did about two weeks ago. What's your thought on this? How much time was left on the clock at that point? Uh, I don't know, but walk us through. Instead of being specific to Jason Kidd, walk us through where what you're what what you're pointing at toward with that thought. I mean, I guess
1: his logic was that you constrain the number of points that teams can get on a typical possession because they can't shoot a three. Right. I guess.
0: And so you're gonna, and they have to foul you. So you're in, his viewpoint is that we're now going to go get ourselves into a free throw shooting contest. We'll foul them; they'll foul us, and there's no way they'll make up those points in that scenario
1: yeah I mean increasing you don't want to increase the number of possessions though, because that also increases your variance and then curiously, given some of his other strategy, you do open yourself up to the possibility of make the first three kind miss the second, get an offensive rebound, make a three, tie the game.
0: okay, so you're going to have a hard you're not going to pass Mr. Kidd's math class.
1: <laughs> I don't know that I am uh,
0: and then what did he do last night? I,
1: I, so I didn't watch the game, so I'm not entirely sure. But I, I think my understanding is they were up three, and instead of making the free throw to tell it to go up four points, he instructed them to intentionally miss, so that you know the only shot that they would have, the other team would have, would be a desperation three from like 80 feet.
0: That seems like a really weird strategy, since if you make the free throw regularly, you win the game.
1: Yeah, I guess the concern was about giving up some sort of four-point play following a a shooter in the act, but you don't have to defend the shooter if you're up four because it doesn't matter if they make it three.
0: So you once again are failing Mr. Kidd's math class?
1: It it, it does appear that way.
0: You you didn't see a lot of zeros on your GPA in your day, but you're lucky you didn't have Mr. Kidd as a professor. Uh, I I guess so. I thought Mike Malone... This is interesting, by the way, because I find NBA coaches to be relatively brilliant and really very rarely miss things like this. I thought Mike Malone's close of the Oklahoma City game the other night was as bad as I've ever seen by a coach. Um, They came out of a timeout with about 48 seconds left in a tie game. Let's start with the first thing. You've got to go two for one, right? Like pretty dramatically two for one. Yes. So he ends up with a offensive play that has no action run at all. They don't pass the ball at all on the entire possession. Either the guys didn't run the play or they ran it with zero urgency at all. Jokic kind of sort of went down to set a pick on the pin down, but not really. Nobody ever came to the ball. And Jamal Murray dribbled for 15 seconds, maybe even 16, and then shot with 30 seconds left or 33 seconds left, rebound down, to Carmelo Anthony, and I believe at this point there's now a five second differential, so they get kind of a two for one, but not nearly the two for one that they should have gotten.
1: And it was well. I mean, I think you do have to be concerned in that situation. The other team can get a two for one too, since it's a tie game.
0: So what number? Like you- if you're
1: down, it's more urgent to probably sh- to shoot earlier. But in a tie game, I think that's about where you'd want because that's plenty of time, assuming you have a timeout, which I think they did, to get off a good shot. And very, it makes it more difficult for the other team to to get to steal your two for one.
0: You don't want you don't want more. You're saying your four seconds is plenty for you. You don't want eight or
1: ten. But I'm saying if it's eight, then it might be the other team is trying to get the two for one with four seconds left. Yeah, pretty tough. As opposed to me getting the two for one at all.
0: Okay, and then he commits a foul at 14 seconds, eliminating the chance to get the ball back.
1: Yeah, I mean, I got to assume this was just uh just forgot it in the moment, forgot the rule in the moment that either that, or he was asking them to use the foul earlier in the shot clock before it would have, before the clock was under 14. And for whatever reason, they didn't hear it and execute until after the shot clock was under 14. Uh, I don't know why you'd want to use your foul to good in that situation anyway. I'm not sure what that. I think the logic I heard was that he wanted to get his better defenders on the floor. It's fascinating. He brought in Tory Craig, who's one of the two-way players. I don't know if he had played. I, I hadn't watched most of that game, so I don't know he had, if he had he played started, at all. But he started. Brought in Tory Craig to defend Russell Westbrook.
0: Yeah, he started. He'd okay. deal. He had played a deal. But they weren't. But what's interesting is they weren't at the table either. Um, like they, it wasn't like they were ready to check in. Um, so then he he only checked them in once. Billy Donovan called timeout.
1: Huh? I mean, maybe he was counting on Donovan to call timeout there. I don't know. I, I had Tory Craig by for thirty minutes in that game. Yeah, huh.
0: that was a great game, boy. Russell, Russell was every bit Russell. So I don't. I mean, he willed them to win, and maybe you just got to give him all the credit in the world, particularly in the sense that he willed them on the win on the first game back from a road trip. and they I mean, it was, it was, an, it was unbelievable. It, it, absolutely uh, no fatigue in any way, shape, or form. On the other end, in the final seven minutes of the game, or nine minutes of the game, He brought the ball across half-court 15 times and had it passed to him two other times and passed four times. Four. In nine minutes.
1: Well, I I think my main thought in that situation is that it's a lot bigger problem if you lose the game. So you better win the game, which they did.
0: Which he did. Thank you, Mike Malone. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think there's something to when those guys, the rest of those guys, are driving home. They're not. There's no thrill of victory for the, anybody else on that team that night. I mean, you know, it's it's
1: tough for me to put myself in the mind of an NBA player because, you know, as a basketball player, I don't I don't want the ball. I'm I'm happy to play with Russell Westbrook, especially for women.
0: So you are Andre Robinson. So it's
1: it's very difficult. Yeah. I find Andre Robertson is, you know, a much better shooter than I am. So that's but that's probably the, uh, the the most apt comparison here.
0: I mean there's an interesting concept that like just nobody is able to do maybe in the history of the game what Russ is able to do. Like I I we've really never had someone with that unbelievable motor that never seems to be tired and um and able to do that. But on the other end, I mean even in the fourth the final 450, he brings the ball half court across half court. Like I think that's the important thing about it. It's not like they're running a bunch of passes and then it's getting to Russ and then he shoots. He's bringing it across half court and then never passing. 9 times he brought yeah. it across half court in the final 450, he threw one pass.
1: I mean to me the interesting question is one of team building. Like is it just a complete waste to have other guys who have the ability to create their own shot on a team with Russell Westbrook? Is it just that you should try to, you know, do the 2001 Sixers thing of, you know, you get these great defensive players and then one other guy who can create his own shot uh, is a sixth man and, and that being Aaron McKee on the Sixers teams to run the offense when he's on the bench.
0: Oh, it's fascinating to me. And I, I'm a little mystified on, Everyone talking about them clicking in and getting better. They are pretty much exactly who I thought they were going to be. They're the 22nd ranked offense because two of their three high volume usage players are inefficient, particularly Carmelo and then Russ's average to below average and Paul George's above average. And they're not a good three-pointing shooting team. They're 26 in the league in three-point. They're actually taking more than I thought they would. And they're the second best defensive team in the league. They're unbelievable. That's exactly who... Actually well, I didn't think that they would be second I didn't think they'd be the second best defensive team with Carmelo. I'll give them credit for that. They're in that sense, they're better than I thought they were going to be with Carmelo. Why does everyone Yes, because I mean Westbrook has
1: been substantially less less efficient this year than any point since his first two years in the NBA. Yes. And that I don't think was particularly predictable.
0: Yes, according to my pack rating, only Lonzo Ball has been more negatively impactful on offense than Russell Westbrook.
1: So I I don't know what's happening there. I I don't whether it's just a case of Westbrook is showing some signs of slowing down, or that it's just a complete fluke and it's something that will right itself in time, and that's where they'll get better. I mean, I think you know I, it, it's interesting. Ben Falk pointed this out on Twitter the other day. Like you know that early stretch they were losing all these close games, and their point differential was really good you know, still one of the best in the Western Conference, but their record was terrible. Now all of a sudden they're winning all their close games, but because of the fact that they're not getting the blowout wins they were earlier and they, when they do lose, it's been relatively lopsided. Now their point differential in the last, you know, 15 games here or so has been actually quite poor despite the fact that their record has stayed the same rate of gotten better. Yeah. It's... So I, I would say I'm more worried about the Thunder now than I was a month ago.
0: Interesting. I actually just think they are who they are. Like, I, I think this is who they are. I think they're capable of scoring better. I mean, I guess maybe I think they're a little better than 15-15, and 15, but not a lot. I, I mean, I, I guess I picked them 6th in the West, but they're 7th in the West right now. So I, I guess... But
1: you, did you expect the West to be... Is, As weak as it has been?
0: No, it's funky. I mean, there's and it's and it's getting worse. Actually, if you dig into it a little bit, I don't know if you've taken the time to do it. I have because I work for the Utah Jazz, so I keep an eye on this thing. But Denver's in the last 15 games is the 30th ranked defense in the NBA. No, wait, they're 29th. New Orleans is the 30th. (laughs) Um, like yeah, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of signs that actually a bunch of these teams are actually getting worse, not better. So, actually, I think the Thunder will rise up in the midst of it. And I'll tell you what. Jimmy Butler should be in the MVP candidate. Because that is a 50-loss team that Jimmy Butler is willing to win on a nightly basis.
1: That's another team that's winning some post-games. hasn't. They're, they're long overdue for it, given their history <laughs> in post-games for the past decade, here, But... Uh... Uh yeah I mean you know he was he was great down the stretch the other night against uh
0: Portland. He's been great down the stretch and I mean I watch them play they just are not connected they're not defending they're they're not doing any of the things that you would think they would do um and then Jimmy Butler just wills them to wins. They they're they're with regularity they are making 50 loss uh team plays if that makes sense. You know what's funny
1: is like the Timberwolves. I mean, they've got the longest playoff drought in the NBA. Then since 2004, that they made the playoffs. They finally are. They're going to make the playoffs almost certainly. Sure. And nobody missed, uh, seems to enjoy watching this team play. But, but the fact they also have like these these exciting young talents, and yeah. Uh, whether it's strictly attributable to Tibbs or just the, the general joylessness of the team. And no one seems happy or excited about it in Minnesota whatsoever. I feel bad for, for Timberwolves.
0: Well, and also, and I'm guilty of this also, this is a team that won 31 games last year, and they're on their pace to win 50, and I'm criticizing them. And that seems like, that means, I kind of think I'm wrong. I kind of feel like I'm wrong on that. But then I go watch them, and every time I watch that Minnesota-Portland game, they did all the same things that I've been watching them do. That's why I just I just think Jimmy Butler is unbelievable. right? Well, in terms of, but then
1: if you look at it and talk about them in terms of point differential, then the, the change is no longer nearly as dramatic because you know this year they're outplaying their point differential. Last year they underachieved it more than I think anyone else in the league, uh, if I recall correctly. So they've actually gone from you know what now they're plus one point two, which is you know about a forty five win team give or take. And the last year they were. Um, minus 1.1. So a 2.3 swing in terms of point differential, that's actually a really common thing. It's just that it's been exacerbated on both sides by their actual record. Interesting.
0: By the way, I misspoke a minute ago. I want to correct it. New Orleans is 30th in the league defensively in the last 10 games, not last 15. Denver is 28th in the league defensively in the last 10 games, not 29th. And my uh Minnesota number was last fifteen games. They've actually been better defensively in the last ten. I think they're twenty first in the league in the last ten, but in the last fifteen Minnesota was twenty seventh just just want to make sure I was accurate we yeah. could We could go for like hours. We're kind of at the point. I want to do quick rapid fire we're kind of where I said we were going to end in my mind. Let me just quickly go rapid fire with you um how good is Toronto? Boy, their footage
1: of for is really terrific, isn't it? I mean,
0: uh, OG Aninobi,
1: we're, we're probably not talking enough. I, I did my rookie rankings today on ESPN Insider and had him fourth after uh, your guy, Jason Tatum, and, and Ben Simmons. Uh, but his addition to the, the, the starting lineup for the Raptors for many years was not very good. Like, the team. Almost exclusively won in the last few years because of how good they were with Kyle Lowry and their bench units on the floor, and they were a 50-win team with a starting lineup that played even or even got outscored. And all of a sudden, as soon as they put OG Anunoby in the starting lineup, their starting lineup is just destroyed. So that's fascinating to me.
0: If you were Sam Presti, would you trade Paul George?
1: Uh, I mean, it depends what the offers are. I don't think the offers would be that helpful in the long run. If you
0: were Cleveland, would
1: you? Because tra- why, are you, why are you going to trade for Paul George if you if you don't think you can resign him? And how many teams can actually be confident they're going
0: to resign him? Well, this gets to my next rapid-fire question: If you were Cleveland, would you trade the Brooklyn pick?
1: Uh, probably not. I don't. I mean, are you asking what I traded for Paul George?
0: Indirectly, that was really what I was setting up. Yes.
1: <sighs> I guess it depends what other salary they're sending out in return. You know, I got to be convinced that it really gives me a chance to beat the Warriors or the Rockets. And that's that's tough to answer without having seen them Isaiah, with Isaiah Thomas in the lineup.
0: When the year started, your percentage of chances you thought the Rockets could beat the Warriors was, and is now. I
1: don't know. I wish I had written it down, but it was probably like I don't know, maybe five to ten percent. And now I'd say thirty, somewhere in that range. And I still think the Warriors are capable of much better than we've seen from them. Clearly, you know they're a team that's not motivated by winning the regular season at this point, uh, but. The Rockets are real good.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We just played Boston, Cleveland, and Houston back-to-back. Prepping for Cleveland, prepping for Boston, I actually was kind of like, eh. Like, they're good. But I wasn't wasn't wowed by what I was seeing. Okay? Prepping for Cleveland, I was like, ooh, they're pretty good, and LeBron's unbelievable. Prepping for Houston, I was like, oh, my God, they're the Warriors of three years ago. That was kind of like, that's my, like... (laughs) As I, you know, and like, that's actually what I saw in person, too, frankly. Um, But that was kind of my level of prepping for those three teams. Boston's got something interesting going on. Brad Stevens, when I asked him about it, said it's because they haven't practiced much. They have not been very good defensively recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you wonder if something's worn off there, if someone's figured something out, or if it was unnatural to start, or if it's just because, you know, they haven't been able to practice as much as they... Uh, and they've played a lot of games," he said.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, they certainly were due for some regression defensively. Just they weren't so good in the first ten, fifteen, you know, during that thirteen win, win streak or whatever it was that, you know, no team could keep it up. Probably defensively, playing as well as they were. Uh, let's talk some more about Houston now. I mean, you know, we talked about the number of threes they're shooting, and then also how important three point shooting has become in the modern game. And it's kind of fascinating because the whole thing is like, oh, live by the three, die by the three. But Houston has been by far the most consistent team in the league in terms of not dropping games to that they should win or dropping games to bad teams. I mean, they, they just they have the best record in the league. So the combination of that is kind of fascinating and, and speaks to the fact that they have managed to pair that with this elite defense as well.
0: Yeah, the die by the three. I'm trying to find the last person who did.
1: Part of what happens, I think, is, you know, it's fascinating, as much as everyone thinks of taking as many threes as the Rockets do as a high-variance strategy, in some ways it actually kind of isn't, because you're taking so many threes that now, eventually you're bound to hit some of them. Like, they actually are in some ways less variants have less variance in terms of three-point shooting than a team that shoots 20 in a given night and might go, you know, four for 21 night and 10 for 20 another, Right. Like they they don't actually have as much of a spread in terms of the number they make.
0: That makes total sense, but it totally just blew my mind. Like, <laughs> like it totally – it was – like, it, it's, it makes yeah, it's, absolute – like, if I'm listening right now as a listener, I think I should wrap the show because, like, that's the takeaway of the show. Like, that's a really incredible concept that if you shoot enough threes, you yeah. eliminate the variance.
1: And not eliminate it, but but mitigate it a little bit. It doesn't it doesn't go, you know, it doesn't in, keep increasing with the number of three. I mean, that's and that could be that's just my observation looking at the Rockets totals last year. Uh, I haven't looked at it this year, but I assume the same thing is true.
0: But this gets back to where we started. that I think is a really really important point, and I wasn't I'm not totally prepared for this, but I I could try to pull it up really quickly. So. The implication when you say someone's shooting a lot of threes is that that the other shot would be something better. But thirty-one point five percent of the shots right now are taking place in the restricted area. I think that's the same as a year ago, and two years ago, and three years ago. I don't think that number's changing.
1: Yeah, I wrote about that a few years ago. Where you know, again, if you look at it, it's the same percentage of shots are taken outside the paint as they have been. Basically, the entirety of the database that, that uh, NBA.com has, which goes back to, I think, 96, 97, and 97, 98. So it's it's two decades worth either way. And it's just that it, then if you look at the ratio of those shots that are two-point jumpers as opposed to three-point jumpers, that's what's
0: changing. But then, so then, if you're taking... Right, then this makes total sense, just doing a really simpl- simpleton because you're much smarter than I am, and I need to be the simpleton. But if you take five mid-range shots and you take five threes, like because mid-range shots go in 40% of the time, and three, this kind of goes back to our late game question we started this with, There, there's a chance that your variance there, like if mid-range shots are going in 41.8% of the time, or whatever it is, 40% of the time, then there's a chance that your... um. That you're going to make three of those is better than making three of the threes if you're taking five of them because the three is a 35% shot, whatever you said it was. But you're absolutely right. If suddenly the number is 40 of them or 50 of them, you actually are eliminating any of that variance.
1: Well, I mean, it's just the, 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 the difference in variance has more over to do less to do with the percentages if you're talking about long twos versus threes because 40% versus 35% doesn't change the variance very much it mostly has to do with the points you're getting
0: right right no but i think the key point of this is that when we're talking about someone not taking a three more they're not it's not that they're getting more shots at the rim right that's that's the key to this whole discussion is that the shots that are being taken as threes would have been long twos I think the other one that we just kind of slipped on that I think is an interesting one and will have to be a dinner conversation for me upcoming. You're late in the shot clock. Do you suddenly space one or two guys five feet behind the three-point line and your late shot clock shot becomes a 35-footer instead of an 18-footer? Or maybe 35 is too many. It'd be interesting to right? see. Like 30-footer, right? Like it's the Eric the Eric Gordon right. three becomes your end-of-shot clock shot rather than the, oh, well, it's six on the shot clock, I'll take the mid-range shot. Like why are we doing that?
1: And then if you designate a couple of guys to do that, then they can start practicing that 30-foot three because that's, that's the important thing is to have it be something that, you know, is, is, a, is a learned skill as opposed to just uh, – stand
0: shot. And then just to take our show full circle as though we perfectly prepared this, then you're five feet closer to getting <laughs> back in transition defense instead of offensive rebounding, and we've discussed that.
1: That is a good point.
0: On that note, KP, I love chatting with you. There's the only man in the world who I can hold 35-minute conversation with with three notes in front of me. My notes today were three and Mr. Kidd's Classroom. And offensive rebound. And those are the only three things I had written down on my piece of paper. I love you, babe. You're the best.
1: Yeah, you know we're going to get someplace interesting.
0: <laughs> what a great, fun conversation with Kevin Pelton. If you could please send him a thank you at at K Pelton at K Pelton. Thank him for coming on Locked On NBA. We really appreciate it. Promo code for draft is L-O-N-B-A. Promo code for SeatGeek is locked. Thanks very much for tuning in. And now, go listen to your favorite team's daily Locked On podcast.